We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Our speaker today is the senior pastor, Tom Nelson. I'd like y'all to look at uh, Proverbs chapter 14 that Jared read to you. And we'll get a little uh, momentum from verse 11 and 12, then go 13 through 19. Let me tell you what this is about. Uh, It has been said that until the midpoint of the 20th century, that the chief attribute, the chief quality that everyone was looking for was that of justice, of an inviolable standard of equality for all men, of what was right, and that it came from a certain place, that it came from God. Maybe it was the God of the Bible, maybe it was just the God you heard about, but you were influenced by that idea of an infinite personal God that was the standard of all right and wrong. Um, If you remember from the 1960s, Reverend uh, Martin Luther King, he said, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. He got that from the book of Amos. Uh, Across the street from the United Nations, they shall beat their swords and plowshares, spears and pruning hooks, and they shall study war no more. They get that from Isaiah. And so there was this kind of this consensus. And from the middle of the 20th century, well, from early before that, but it really hit a watershed at the beginning of of the middle of the 20th century, that it was no longer justice, but it was tolerance. And when I say tolerance, that's a biblical virtue to coexist with people that differ with you, but uh, to, to hold to what you believe, but to be kind to those around you. If possible, so as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. So that's good. But the tolerance of the 20th century was because of the belief that there is no final truth. That truth is not something that is out there. That truth is just a a word that is in here. You invent what is true. That your soul is like a cookie cutter upon nature and it's not looking for something, it determines something. And I say, my truth is this. Uh, Your truth can be that. No one's right, no one's wrong because there is no final truth, because there is no ultimate God. And so that began to be the mantra. And as a result, uh, today, you're, you're not seen as wise by knowing what is true. You're seen as uh, bigoted in knowing what the truth is. How dare you? Um, a woman named Elizabeth Elliot wrote a book once to her nephew about manhood. And she was talking about the day that we were in, that a man has to be strong, that you have to be a, a lighthouse you have to hold to what is right. And that is job in your, in your job in your, with your family is to, to guide them and to protect them no matter what is around you. And she likened it our present day to being like a uh, astronaut that's outside the uh, uh, atmosphere and he loses a sense of gravity. And now you no longer have things falling at a certain rate of speed. All the rules are now gone. Yeah, I mean, it's just a bad deal. That's, that's what I said. It's what her nephew said. 
Was that an exorcism or was that a cough? I just couldn't tell. And so, uh, I got lost. So there was this idea that that uh, when you get outside the atmosphere, you you can't you know brush your teeth in water because the water is is not stays put. It, it's it's uh, all over the inside. You can't take a bath because the water is not held together, and so everything changes. Your world and the order of it is gone from planet Earth. And Elizabeth Elliot said to her nephew, "That is what the world is today. That all of a sudden." Nothing holds together. There are no Newtonian ideas of right and wrong. Isn't that the truth? You ever, you ever read the Narnia Chronicles about the, the Satan figure is the white witch that has taken over the earth. And uh, she lies to everybody about the king about Aslan, the great lion. She lies. And as she lies, C.S. Lewis, marvelous, uh, illusory idea, the white witch will strum on a stringed instrument when she is lying to you. Strum, strum, strum. And that monotony creates an ambience that you can't concentrate on anything that is right. And that lie, you're now susceptible to it. It's like your immune system is gone and she just strums. You ever feel like in our world, you hear the strumming of the white witch? You really do. And to where when anybody speaks something true, all of a sudden it looks like something bad. That was really the essence of the Garden of Eden. Eve, has God said? Yes, God said, don't do that or you'll die. That is not true. That is not true. The word of God is not true and justice is not real. That's not true. And the reason is because God is false. He knows the day you do it, you're going to be like him challenging him. He is not good. If you're going to live, Eve, you got to break the monotony. You got to break free from God and you can fly. It's your thing. Do what you want to do. I can't tell you who to suck it to. Is anybody with me on there? Yeah. Get your motor running way out on the highway looking for adventure like a true nature's child. You're born. You don't know Romans, do you, Kurt? But you know, right there. Yeah. You're my people. That's who you are. And so that is what this text is about, is about the white witch and about doing the right thing. Do you ever send your kids off to college with a, you're kind of nervous because they're not going to the college's that we went to. No, it's, it's going to the strumming out there in every area, in business, in education, in the church. I'm sorry, but in the church, uh, in uh, the arts. Anybody watch the Grammys? That was an abomination. It was an abomination. And the crazy thing was it was surrounded by pretty people applauding. It's amazing. I said to my wife, I have lived too long. Well, with that bit of encouragement, look at verse 11 and 12. He just tells you in 11 that life can be illusory. 
it can be a lie that the house of the wicked will be destroyed, the tent of the of the upright will flourish. House versus tent. Sometimes evil can build quicker and bigger than righteousness. And so that house, however, when the returns are in, don't be fooled by it because it's coming down. And the tent of the upright, though it builds smaller and slower, it's gonna, like the tortoise, it's gonna go right on by the hair when it comes down. And so life can be an illusion. In verse 12, there is a way that seems right to a man. It's the strumming and you can be deceived. But the end, payday is the way of death. The point of verse 11 and 12 is that a man or a woman can be deceived by what they think, what they feel, what they see, and what they hear. You gotta be real careful. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of mockers. His delight, the law of the Lord. And in that law, he meditates day and night. These guys can do their thing. He meditates day and night. He'll be like a tree, firmly planted, streams of water, yields its fruit in its season, leaf doesn't wither. The wicked, they're like shaft that the wind drives away. They will not stand in the assembly of the righteous. They're gone. When the final verdict comes, they're gone. And so in verse 13, we pick up on that that even in laughter, you can't trust it. The heart may be in pain. Blaise Pascal said, there is a God-shaped vacuum within the heart of every man. And man tries to fill it with all the created. It can only be filled by the creator made known through Jesus Christ. And so you can go to a bar and see everybody laughing and partying and having a good time but you don't know what's in their heart when they go home. Uh, he goes on to say, the end of joy may be grief, that you can be deceived and not realizing that laughter can be shallow and laughter can be short-lived. Whenever you see pictures of Marilyn Monroe, she's always smiling and laughing and dressed to the nines, beautiful, just before she killed herself. When you see Elvis, he looks the same way just before he OD'd, all right, with broken marriages behind them. I think Marilyn had three, Elvis had one. And so you can't go by what you see. I remember as a guy in college going to the Lemon Tree Lounge. I can tell this now because my mother has passed away. <laughs> and I would go to this place down on Harry Hines with my other degenerate friends. And we would sit there and drink and dance. I couldn't dance until I was thoroughly drunk. Okay, but I was incredible, all right? <laughs> 70s were a great time to be a white male. They really were. 
because there was no rules to dancing. All right, you just do. And I would look and see myself in the bar mirror, and I would think, "This ain't good. <laughs> this is not good." somebody's gonna get knifed. I would see the guys getting all lubed up. The girls could get hit on. They're responding. Guys starting to get mad. I watched a North Texas tackle, Andy Anderson, get irritated at an SMU offensive lineman. North Texas and SMU would come together at the Lemon Tree Lounge. And I watched Andy leap over the uh, uh, pool table and bite him on the cheek. And I had a moment of clarity. <laughs> this is not good. <laughs> and they didn't teach me this in the Herring Avenue Methodist Church Sunday school. <laughs> I needed to get home. And so laughter can be shallow. Joy can be short-lived. When you're watching the Grammys, if you did, you saw all the beautiful people, the handsomest guys, the prettiest ladies, skimpiest clothes, all right? And they're all laughing, having a good time. But the returns aren't in. They also happen to worship the devil, if you saw the show. And so, the beautiful people can mislead. Whenever you take pictures in Hollywood, you have a publicity agent taking publicity photos. What's the root word of publicity, the public? I want you to think of us in this way. Whenever you see an advertising deal, do you ever just look at it and go, how stupid do they think we are to do this? You know, I was... One time, listening to one of the great commentators, uh, Jerry Seinfeld. <laughs> and he was talking about a commercial, a soda commercial. This was in his stand-up routine. And he said, I'm watching all these guys in the soda commercial, and they're like a bunch of young, tanned, beautiful people. They're on the beach. They're having a clam bake. They're playing guitars. They're singing. They're skiing. Life is just great. And he says, I'm watching the commercial with my soda in a recliner and my underwear and a bathrobe. And I'm watching them have all this time. And here I am sitting around in my underwear. And he said, I'm thinking, maybe I'm holding it wrong. <laughs> you ever felt like that? Everybody, I mean, I watched one time a juicy fruit commercial. And I said, God. Juicy fruit just gives you straight teeth and a tan. Here I am, teeth like gang signs coming in like that. I need some juicy fruit. And so, are you with me? Don't get fooled by the crowd. The Bible says the mind of the wise is in the house of mourning. When he goes to a funeral, you get real smart because that's the end of every man. And the wise take it to heart. But the mind of the fool is in the house of pleasure. He's at the lemon tree lounge. He can't see. You know, one guy put it like this. He said, uh, in the first miracle of Christ, they said to the head waiter that brought the wine, Jesus had 
had created. And he said to him, you know, and he didn't know Jesus had done it. He just said to the, to the uh, guy that was the wedding feast, he said, you know, every man serves the good wine first and then later that which is poorer. You know why? Because you serve the good wine and you anesthetize your tongue. Don't look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> you anesthetize their tongue and then you bring out the mad dog 40. All right. Mogan David 2020. That'll take the uh, chrome off a trailer hitch. All right. And now we're going to give it to you. And that's, he said, that's the way Satan is. Satan gives you the good wine first and then Mogan David. And now you're throwing up an alley. See? And he says, you've served, you've waited till the end to bring the best wine. And the, the commentator said, that's the way God and Satan works. Satan gives you the pleasures of sin that are but for a season. And then the wage of sin, it's payday. It's death. Rumpelstiltskin will let you turn straw into gold, but he wants something. You remember the fairy tale? I want your firstborn kid. He's mine. George Barna said in the race for a child's heart, first one there wins. Okay. And so uh, in verse 14, here's what will last. This is not illusory. This is not water outside the atmosphere. The backslider in heart will have his fill of his ways. When the day is over, fill of his ways means he's gonna eat and you're going to experience death. So we're gonna serve the, the bad stuff last of all. And in verse uh, 14, but the good man will be satisfied with his. The righteous will reap 30, 60, 100 fold. How does this verse go? Solomon, do not look on the wine when it sparkles in the cup. For in the end, it bites like a serpent. Amen? Yeah. The pleasures of sin, but for a season, the wage of sin is death. So David would say in the Psalms, better to be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. You're far better off just to sit in the back as a saved man than to be in downtown LA partaking of what's there. All right. And so he goes on in verse 15. Application the naive believes everything. The Hebrew term is literally simple, and that means singular. The naive guy can't think in uh, critical thinking. This is good, this is bad. He feels it, he sees it, he's told it, he does it. He's like an ox led to the slaughter. Uh, as a matter of fact, we have a term for it in English. When you think of someone that goes only with how they feel, you're thinking about a child. 
That's why to violate a child sexually is called statutory rape because a kid couldn't discern. And so we have a word for, for someone that can't judge that a child was called a knave. And the word we get out of that, naivety. Naivety is when you are childish. We're childlike in our trust in God, but we're not supposed to be childish to where you can't discern good or bad. And as a result, he will believe anything. But in verse 15, the sensible, the guy that's got his head screwed on, the girl that's thinking with the criteria of the Bible, it says uh, they consider their steps. Is this right? Where this goes, is this right? Broad is the way, narrow is the way. Rotten fruit, good fruit, house that stands, house that's gone. Path, life, judgment. Jesus said, go the narrow way. You know, when I was young, my mother, we had these, this book called, uh, it was a fairy tale book, Grimm's Fairy Tale. Did y'all ever read those? Most frightening thing you can read. Them German guys were nuts. They really were. Grimm's fairy tales. And the one that used to terrify me was Little Red Riding Hood. Are you with me? She's going to grandma's. What a sweet girl. Going to take something to her grandma. And she meets a predator. And the wolf goes to grandma's house. Does he eat grandma? He don't want that skinny old woman. He runs grandma off, naked in the woods and takes her clothes. All right, that's a scary fairy tale right there. And then he puts on the old woman's clothes and is lying in the bed. Here comes, you ever seen a wolf in a bonnet? And you know, a, a duster, you know, it's a scary thing. My mother was scary enough when I would see her as a kid. A wolf like this? And he's sitting there and she comes in. What big eyes you got? Better to see you with. What big ears you got? Better to hear you with. What big teeth you got? Better to eat you up with. And all of a sudden, this wolf is going to consume this naive little girl that goes with what she sees and what she feels until, praise God, the hunter comes in with an ax and just mutilates that wolf. It's a fantastic story, I remember. <laughs> and that book illustrated it. I mean, there was blood and just, you know, nightshirts and wolf parts hanging all over the place. Moral of the story is you're in trouble when you can't tell the difference between a predator and your grandmother. See, did you ever watch Hansel and Gretel? It's terrifying. So which builds a house out of gingerbread, which took some doing. And here comes these two little stepkids kicked out. Hey, you like this gingerbread? Is that your house? Yeah, you want to eat it? Yeah, sure. And so this kid, Hansel, gets fattened up, and this witch is going to do cannibalizing, all right? 
and she uses Gretel to work for and slaves her and then ask her to look in the uh, oven where she's gonna cook poor old Hansel and she's got the presence of mind to say, I don't know how to do it. The old woman looks in, pushes her in, burns her up alive and they all lived happily ever after. See? Which tells you, you better be able to tell the difference between a cannibal and a pastry chef. Okay. <laughs> Are you with me, Steve? That's basic child rearing. Okay. I'm glad you made it here this morning to, to learn this stuff. And so in verse 16, the wise man literally fears and turns away from evil. Before he does it, he says, is this the will of God? Because if it isn't, I'm about to get out of the atmosphere and the rules don't hold and I'm in trouble. So is this of God? You remember, who was it? Joseph, lie with me. How can I do this great evil and sin against God? Your husband's given me everything and trusts me with everything but you. How can I do this and sin against God? I'm sure that Potiphar's wife says, I don't believe in God. He said, I don't care, I do. And no, I'm not gonna do that. That's uh, essentially a high school sophomore. He was 17 years old. Not bad, Kurt, not bad. He's a high school sophomore. And he said, that's not right. And that's what we want one prudent in speech that fears God turning away from evil. That's how they described another 17 year old named David, okay? Well, the wise man, he walks scared and he turns away. The fool, he could not care less. He is too smart to be controlled by everybody else. This is the 60s, long before the 60s. You know, I remember Norm Geisler. Steve, you remember him? Great, great apologist. And I had him in, in seminary, at Dallas Seminary. And Norm Geisler said to us, he said, when you're reading philosophy, you better be careful. He said, rationalistic, empirical philosophy gets confusing and it's like trying to look at a pane of glass right on top of you, you'll go cross-eyed. It's that it, no one likes to read philosophy. You read what people say about philosophy until he said you get to existentialism. And he said this to us in 1977. He says, this dominates our day. Existentialism is where you determine your existence. You're not looking for truth. You are truth. You're not looking for God. You are God. And you now, if you like it, you declare that that's true for you. And now you have no governance except yourself. And Geisler said to us, when you read philosophy, you're gonna get bored with the guys from Descartes to, uh, to Kant, you'll get bored. But he said, when you read existentialism, he said, it is the essence of the serpent. And that's ultimately where philosophy will lead you to to where there is truth, but it's made by me. And I judge truth, truth does not judge me. He said, now you are in the grasp of the serpent. Isn't that good? Not good, but it's good to know that. And so 
He says, the fool is arrogant and could care less what you tell him. But in verse 17, the reason he'll do it is because it's quick. It feels good, you don't have to think, and you become the primary nuclear center of the world. It's you. And the quick-tempered man acts foolishly. When you act on how you feel, you explode in anger. As a matter of fact, you know where the word anger comes from? A-G-R-O-S, agros means wild. To bring the wild under control is called agriculture, when you subdue the wild. We get the word anger, and it means uninhibited. When you get crossed, you explode. Y'all have anybody in your house that you grew up with that you're always walking on eggshells? because they're like blasting caps. And as soon as you cross it, they explode. When you do it, it feels good when you explode. But later in verse 17, you're seen as a fool. And nobody wants to work with you. No one wants to be around you, but it felt so good when it came out of you. But you look stupid. I speak from experience. We've all done it and I've done it. It feels good when you explode, but then you're somebody that has no self-control. It's, it's the essence of weakness. And in verse 17, not just temper, but crime, when you have evil devices. In other words, I want what's on that shelf. Work for it, take the money and buy it. No, I'm gonna shoplift and I'm gonna have it now. I'm not gonna save. I'm gonna burglarize so I can have it right now. My son became a Fort Worth cop because somebody broke into his wife's car. A lot of times guys will sit outside of health studios and gyms and they'll watch women going in. Men will take their wallets, but a woman doesn't wanna mess with a purse. Ladies, take your purse, okay? Well, sometimes about one out of 10 women won't. They'll leave the purse and the guy's watching. And as soon as you're in, it's called smash and grab. It doesn't take a lot of talent. You smash, you grab it, you run, and make sure that you got long sleeves where the uh, camera can't pick up your tattoo. Write that down, Kurt. All right, because they'll identify you, all right? And so that's an evil device that I will sell drugs. I don't have to work now. I'll just sell drugs. I will pimp. I don't have to work. I just sell this woman, get her addicted on something, sell them. Well, when you do that in verse uh, 17, what's the last word in verse 17? Hated. Everybody hates you. The quick-tempered man is a fool. And so it comes back on you, this stuff. That's why when you go to hire somebody, you send out what is called a character reference. I need somebody to tell me that the morals are in place and I can turn my back on this guy. 
And I don't care if you're an atheist, you want a character reference that I can trust this guy. Well, in verse 19, uh, I'm sorry, verse 18, this is the final chapter. The knave, incidentally, the word naive in Greek, did I tell you this? It's the word akakos. Did I say that? Did I say that, Steve? Are you sitting in this service, Kurt? Okay. Akakos, kakos means evil. Akakos means no evil. He has no sense of discernment. And so to that guy, he is going to inherit, this is payday, you're gonna be a failure. You're gonna be a loser. You're gonna be seen as an idiot. But in verse 19 or 18, the sensible, they are crowned. Everybody adores that person because of their knowledge. George Bailey, everybody shows up and sings his praises and crowns in there and applauds his life and do everything they can do to help this guy out. Because George had a sense of right. He would say no to himself, yes to others. Potter, he ain't invited. As a matter of fact, who wrote that? Frank Capra, when he did It's a Wonderful Life, he, he did a lot of feel-good movies. They were called Capricorn, okay? And Frank Capra said the most amount of uh, letters he got on a movie complaining was It's a Wonderful Life. You know that? You know what they complained about? Potter didn't get his own. They wanted to see Potter thrown out of the third story, him in his wheelchair <laughs> and hit the ground and people beat him to death, you know? Because Potter doesn't get his and you wanna see him get his. So it's like George said to Potter, you're this insignificant little spider that spins its web, but everybody gathers for George. And so that's how it ends. Well, he goes on in verse 19, the final tally, evil will bow down before the good. So who wins, good or evil? Good, ultimately it's gonna win. But in verse 19, the wicked are gonna be at the gates of the righteous. They're going to lose. They're, the verdict is gonna come down on them. When you go to the book of Revelation, outside the holy city are, and it goes down the list of all of these evils. They're not there. They're in the lake of fire. So uh, Jesus said, blessed are you who suffer for righteousness sake because yours is the kingdom of heaven. It's coming. Blessed are you when men revile you on account of the Son of Man. Great is your reward, so rejoice, because so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You stand in the long gray line of greatness. I would better be a gatekeeper in the, in the house of God, a doorkeeper, than to dwell in the tents of, of wickedness. Well, 
the conclusion is really, uh, you ever read Shakespeare, Midsummer Night's Dream? When the little fella says, I think it's Pan. He says, what fools these mortals be? What fools these mortals be? It's been said that if you wanted to make a history book, that the opening preface to the book should be called, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Man is the one self-destructive animal that will destroy others, will destroy himself, and go completely against everything that it innately knows he wants others to treat him. Isn't that amazing? It's a story, the Bible is, with a plot, an author, actors, villains, heroes, a pivot, and a crescendo. Uh, the ultimate love story. Do you like love stories? This is a bridegroom to his people Israel, a bridegroom to the church that God is the one that loves her. She wanders, is destroyed. He gets her. He cleanses her from every spot and blemish. And then in my father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you and I'm going to take you home. Isn't that good? That's greater than Hallmark, you know. The ultimate mystery is here you see this horrid event, this perfect man who comes to call man back to God, to get reconciliated to God. And they lie about him, find him innocent, and then kill him merely for who he said he was. They torture him for six hours. And then they lie about his apostles stealing his body. And then it goes out to the nation. They reject Peter. They reject the twelve. Here comes Stephen, and they kill him after he does an Old Testament recital, and they kill him. And so, how horrid, and up from the grave he arose, and it turns out this is the seed of woman that will crush the serpent's head, though he himself is bitten. It's like Samson's riddle, out of something bitter comes something sweet, and out of the eater comes something to eat. How can death bring life? You got seven days to guess that riddle. And the only way you can know is you've got to go to the bride. She'll tell you. Otherwise, you're going to get slapped naked and hide your clothes. All right. That's what Samson does too. And that's the ultimate sci-fi. You've got the planet, but above it, you have the Trinity, the angelic realm. Lucifer, the demonic realm, the creation to demonstrate his glory. Here he comes into the middle of it to a manger. All heaven shows up, sings, disappears. God speaks from heaven. This is my son. Raises, he ascends to glory, and then it goes silent. And Revelation says he's coming back. It's the ultimate sci-fi. Uh, it's the ultimate horror novel. The serpent lies to you, bites you. You are dead to God. And you go singing all the way down the river 
into the lake of fire, thinking things are great until all of a sudden you hear this cackle when life is over and you're a dead man. It's the ultimate redemption, creation, the fall, restoration, return. It's a, uh, a redemption novel in that you have evil and here comes a person who is going to be the ultimate hero and fix things. You ever watch Open Range? Kevin Costner, are you with me, Debbie? Kevin Costner? Would you like to watch Kevin Costner for about two hours? <laughs> Open Range. I've watched that show 700 times because I can't go away from it. You watch this evil guy, Baxter, crush people, controls evil, and just does such harm to little guys, big guys, women. Yeah, he's bad. And here comes Augustus McRae. Robert, what's his name? Robert Duvall and Kevin Costner. Debbie, Kevin Costner. All right. With a beard. Now he looks sensational. Okay. And they're going to take on evil. Are they outnumbered? Greatly outnumbered. But nobody knows something. And you start to get tipped off as you watch it. There's something wrong with, what's his name? What's Kevin Costner's name? Postlewaite. Kevin Costner. <laughs> There's something wrong with him. You find out he's got PTSD from the Civil War and he's a keg about to explode but Robert Duvall keeps him under control. He's a cowboy. And all of a sudden, the bad guys line up. And Teresa says, come over here and wash the dishes. <laughs> Have you lost your mind? <laughs> You've got to watch Charlie Postlewaite go off and just... Kill everything. It's a fantastic movie. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's rags to riches. It's a mystery. It's redemption. I don't know how because the movie makes you hate old Baxter and you don't know how it's going to end. And all of a sudden, Charlie comes out from who he is and man, he's dangerous. You read the Bible and it's so sad until all of a sudden this guy rises from the dead and starts breathing on people and they come back and they become soldiers. Then he returns and into the lake of fire you go. <laughs> all right. You got the ultimate. You like Debbie novels with surprise endings? It's the ultimate surprise ending right here. Let me tell you something. Uh... The Bible really isn't a story of history of the human race. 
It's the story of the history of the elect nation. The first 2,000 years of human history are Genesis 1 through Genesis 11. And it covers it like this. Because it's looking at things that are not ultimately that significant. But once you get to chapter 12, it's the calling of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Judah. And the Israelite nation in Exodus, they grow huge, they come out, you get the law, then you see their history. And it's interesting because Abraham is about 2000 BC. He's right midpoint between creation, Abraham, Christ. It's a watershed. Here's the way we're gonna fix it. There's gonna be a miracle child come from the Jew, from Judah, from Bethlehem. I mean, it's the greatest sci-fi. It's a Grimm's fairy tale. Here's the kid with the birthmark. It's him. And you watch him and you watch the angels sing. God says, this is my beloved son. You watch him. You watch him in the temple. Everybody's around him. They can't figure him out. Beautiful words falling from his lips. And so you see Abraham and then you see, boom, here he comes. And all of your Bible is talking about him. All of your Bible's talking about him. Revelation's waiting for him. Okay. In between, there's 2,000 from Abraham to Jesus, and then you see his death. And then you see 2,000 years so far in between. And the amazing thing is, in your Old Testament, there's, there are demonstrations of divine power. The flood, uh, the destruction of the Egyptians, God's deliverance of Joseph, dreams coming to them, um, the Israel in the wilderness fed, Amalekites destroyed. All in the Old Testament, it's a light show of God dealing with his people. Then you come to the Gospels, and it really is 4th of July. He does 35 miracles with just his word, just saying things. Uh, you can touch the hem of his garment, and then you see the book of Acts, and it continues. Peter, wow, jail falls down. Paul, wow, jail falls down. And at the end of Paul's life, the nation Israel has rejected him. And now you see Paul in a prison alone, and he dies. And then you see all of a sudden Rome, Corinth, Galatia, Ephesus, Philippi, Thessalonica, Colossae, Gentile cities between the cross and the return is the silence of God. Where, how many people have ever, you've ever heard some guy say, I don't believe in God because I, where are the miracles? Kind of like Gideon said, if he is God and if he loves us and he's taking care of us, where's all his miracles? Why don't we see the spirit blow and 4,000 people come to faith like Pentecost? Why do we not see jails fall down? Because God has given the acme of all of his miracles. What is the greatest miracle in the Bible? The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, 
the giving of the Holy Spirit, greater works shall you do, and that is the conversion of men. And for 20 centuries, God, where are you? I'm not saying nothing. Why? Because I said it all. God who spoke to the fathers in many portions and in many ways and this last day has spoken in his son. That's all. Speak some more. No. You've got the finished Bible. You've got the resurrection. I've made my statement. Well, why don't you, why do you let man be evil? Because I've given him an amnesty. I've punished their sin. So now man has got a choice. God hath commanded men everywhere to repent, having fixed a day in which he will judge the world through a man, having furnished proof to all men and that he has raised him from the dead. I want to see miracles. I showed you one. A dead man has risen and has given life. Now you respond. Read your Bible. You can see it. Respond. I want to see light shows. No. I will not condescend to besmirch his name by doing a light show for you. You respond. Tick, 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 tick. Because I read ahead, all right? And when you get to Revelation, it's not prophecy. Revelation is time travel. You get to get in the book and travel to the future. You don't get to read prophecy. You see it. You ever read Revelation? It's a light show. It's called the day of the Lord. Or as Forrest Gump said, and God showed up. It's when he shows up and he will say to his church, come up here. And then two chapters later, he says to evil, come down. You ever been hit by a hundred pound hailstone? It's coming. You've been stung by a locust for five months where you're begging for death. It's coming. Oh, we're going to see a light show. Aren't you glad that God has had mercy for 20 centuries? Why doesn't God deal with evil? Great, we'll start with you. Oh, no, I don't mean me. I mean, you know, the Baxters. <laughs> Not me. No, he's coming. And it is the ultimate surprise ending. It's the ultimate Western where the good guys beat the bad guys. So this is the greatest novel of all time. It just happens to be true. The uh, guy I was quoting from is a... Uh, his name is Sir Robert Anderson. He was a Scotland Yard detective who wrote a book that is only 84 pages. Maybe the best book I ever read. It was given to me by accident. Somebody gave me some antique books that was on it. I'd heard about him. I'd never read his stuff. He's from the 1800s. And he wrote on what's called the silence of God. From the death of Christ to the return, why do we not see light shows? Because God has spoken. And these last days he has spoken in his son, having furnished proof in that he has raised him from the dead. And when he made purification of sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until he will come and put his enemies beneath his feet. So you see the silence of God. In a sense, the silence of the last 20 centuries is a bit of common revelation onto the character of God, on the sufficiency of Christ's work. And Sir Robert Anderson, you can buy his book on Amazon for five bucks. The greatest books you can get for the cheapest because nobody reads them. 
they want to read, I touched the ark by this guy over here or something, you know. And so he wrote and he said in the 1800s, it was reserved for Christianity to present to the world an ideal character which through all the changes of 18 centuries, that's when he wrote it, has filled the hearts of men with an impassioned love, has shown itself capable of acting on all ages, nations, temperaments, conditions, has not only been the highest pattern of virtue, but the highest incentive to the practice of virtue is the redemption of Christ and has exerted so deep an influence that it may be truly said that the simple record of three short years of active life has done more to regenerate and to soften mankind than all the disputations of philosophers and the exhortations of moralists. This has indeed been the wellspring of whatever has been best and purest in the Christian life. Amid all the sins and failings of the church, amid all the priestcraft, he's talking about Catholicism, all the persecutions and fanaticism which have defaced the church, it has preserved in the character and example of its founder, Jesus Christ, an enduring principle of regeneration. He can make things new. Amen. And so, don't be naive. Don't be fooled by the strumming of the white witch. Use your head. Use your Bible. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have come to light a lamp in us and it's not to be put under a bushel, but it's to be put on a lampstand so that all in the house may see and be blessed by the light. And so I pray, Lord, as you have saved us and enlightened us with the light of thy word, thy word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. I have seen a limit to all perfection. Thy word, O God, is infinite. God, in this day of the strumming of the witch that lulls into deafness entire cultures, I pray, God, that you might find us attentive to your word as unique people, those who have been summoned out from our surroundings, Gentiles summoned out from our Hinduism and Buddhism and Islam and philosophies and out from our atheism and agnosticism and scientism. You have summoned us out from our dualism, our Zoroastrianism, from our Baha'i. You have summoned us out from the polytheism and the naturalism and the hedonism of our world and taken us in that narrow path to heaven in the light of Jesus Christ, your son. And Lord, we admit that the natural man appraiseth not the things of the Spirit of God, their stupidity to him. He can't understand them. They are spiritually understood. But the spiritual man appraises all the things of God. Yet he himself is appraised by no man. They can't understand God and they can't understand his people. And so I pray that we would stand firm and proud in this day and labor for those things that are right until you appear and call us home. 
We'll ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.